My name is Cameron DeVazier. We're going to be talking about the circuit of beneficence today. Basically, what we're going to be doing is giving a theological or philosophical framework for practical Christianity in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I think that there are oftentimes the Seventh-day Adventist uh, mindset is such that we have a message which we do and a mission which we do, and then our mission is to simply articulate a message and not participate in anything else. So what, what exactly should our work look like and uh, what, are the frame, what, what framework, what philosophy underlies it? What is our theology that goes before our practice? So before we get started with anything else, I'd like to just start briefly with a word of prayer. So would you please bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to spend these few minutes together exploring deep thoughts from your word and from your inspired counsel in the spirit of prophecy. Lord, help us to understand what the message is for our time and help us to be part of that entire restoration of the universe that you have in store for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a slight confession. I have always really enjoyed the writings of Ellen White. I very much appreciated what she had to say. And the way in which she said it, I was always very drawn to. But in my younger days, which I'm getting to the point in life where I can refer to my younger days, uh, I would read the writings of Mrs. White and kind of skip past the floofy stuff. Kind of like the birds and the, and the songs and the love and the children and the lambs, that kind of warm, fuzzy kind of stuff. I wanted to get to like the identity of the Antichrist and the 144,000 and the great prophetic. I wanted to get to the good stuff, you know. But recently, uh, in studying, um, we have a weekly prayer meeting in Muskegon in Fremont where I pastor and we've been studying the desire of ages. And, and recently, uh, uh, a quote, a passage that originally left just a glancing blow in my mind, hit me squarely in the eyes. And everything that we're going to be talking about today comes from, is derived from that passage, which in your notes is right there, the very first thing under introduction. It it comes from Desire of Ages, pages 20 and 21. So I'm just going to read to you about three paragraphs from the Desire of Ages, and that will set our course for where we're going today. It says, There is nothing save the selfish heart of man that lives unto itself. No bird that cleaves the air, no animal that moves upon the ground, but ministers to some other life. There is no leaf of the forest or lowly blade of grass, but has its ministry. Every tree and shrub and leaf pours forth that element of life without which neither man nor animal could live. And man and animal in turn minister to the life of tree and shrub and leaf. And you would think, this is a grand opus on the life of Christ. Why is she talking about trees and shrubs and leaves? What is she talking about? Well, she goes on. The flowers breathe fragrance and unfold their beauty and blessing to the world. The sun sheds its light to gladden a thousand worlds. The ocean itself, the source of all of our springs and fountains, receives the streams from every land, but takes to, what's the next word? Give, takes to give. This is going to be an ongoing idea throughout this seminar today takes to give the mists ascending from its bosom fall in showers to water the earth that it may bring forth and bud the angels of glory find their joy in giving giving love and timeless tireless watch care to souls that are fallen and unholy Heavenly beings woo the hearts of men. They bring to this dark world light from the courts above. By gentle and patient ministry, they move upon the human spirit to bring the lost into a fellowship with Christ, 
which is even closer than they themselves can know. Which There's a whole sermon right in that phrase, that they have tireless care that we get connected to God in such a way that they cannot even personally appreciate. But they know it's a benefit to us, so they just give for our benefit. Goes on. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. So you notice there's a progression. It starts with like shrubs and trees and leaves and flowers, then up to men and angels. And now she said, now all those are the lesser things, but we most fully see God in Jesus himself. Looking unto Christ, we see that it is the glory of our God to do what? To give. Very simply, it is the glory of God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. Notice now, in these words is set forth, and right here in the middle of all the floofy talk about flowers and birds and trees and shrubs, is this statement. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. Whatever we just talked about there in the trees and the shrubs and the flowers and the birds apparently is the great principle, the law of life for the universe. She articulates, All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. Very simple premise. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. And through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, capital G. refers to God as the great giver. And you picture a circuit, an electric circuit. She says, in Christ, this circuit is now complete. Everything flows through and everything flows out. And there's apparently in heaven a harmonious principle where everyone takes only to give. Okay? This is the great operating premise of God's heavenly universe. The grand principle of life. Mrs. White's assertion, by the way, that selfless beneficence is the great principle, is the law of life for the universe, is firmly founded in Scripture. Look at a few of these texts. We go to the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to do what? To love one another. Then he says this, For he who loves one another has done what? Has fulfilled the law. Now, I know that there are seven dads who have struggled with this. Like, we teach doctrine and doctrine and doctrine, and somebody says, yes, but you're just supposed to love, and that's the law. And you're like, ah, that is in the Bible. How, do we, what, how does this fit into our understanding of our proclamation? What are we supposed to do with this? Paul goes on to say, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. For all the law, and of course he's speaking of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandment law, the very law of God, all the law is fulfilled in one word. What is that word, of course? Love. Even in this, you shall love, and you would think it would be the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. That's not what it says. All the law is fulfilled in love. Particularly, you shall love your what? Neighbor. Neighbor as yourself. All the law is wrapped up in this one 
principle. Just to think that, you know, well, Paul could be off. You know, he was culturally conditioned, some might say, and maybe he just had this on. No, 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 no. He was solid. Mrs. White got this from Scripture and from direct inspiration. But notice that Jesus himself makes this point. Matthew chapter 7. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. What do we call this typically? The what? The golden rule. Then he says, for this is what? The law and the prophets. If I were to summarize all the law and the prophets, Christ says, Paul says, if I were to summarize all the law of God, Mrs. White says, the entire principle of the universe, the great operating scheme of God's government is simply this. Give unto others. Well, let's bring this out a little. We've got some extra time in our seminar left. Let's, let's figure out what, she's, what we're talking about here. Let's continue with our statement. We're going to go back to Desire of Ages, page 21 now. The very next words after representing the character of the great giver, the law of life, the very next sentence, the very next paragraph says, In heaven itself this law was broken. Sin originated in what? Self-seeking. See, there's this great circuit of beneficence. Everything takes to give. Everything just goes and goes and goes like a great roundabout. But at one point in heaven, this law was broken. And someone along the line decided instead of selflessness, why don't we try operating on a principle of selfishness? And thus the great circuit of beneficence was broken. In heaven itself, this law was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. He sought to gain control of the heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator, and to win their homage to himself. Now, as you know, and we're going to see this later in Isaiah and Ezekiel, he was ordained as a minister of God, God's right-hand man, one of those covering cherubs right in the very glory of God's very presence. And his job was to lead the people through him to Jesus. He was part of that circuit of beneficence, received to give. But at some point, he just wanted to take. And there's a short in the circuit of beneficence. This is the origin of sin. It was a short circuit in this great principle of heaven. Therefore, so what we've seen here now, well, we'll, we'll, I'll break it down in just a second. Therefore, he misrepresented God attributing to him the desire for self-exaltation. With his own evil characteristics, he sought to invest the loving creator. Thus he deceived angels, thus he deceived men. So notice he's got an operating principle that his government is going to run with, and that is selfishness. God has an operating principle called selflessness. And now you have these two grand principles in competition for loyalty in God's universe. Selflessness versus selfishness. And notice that's the principle difference. And therefore, out of that, Satan derived a policy. He did something. He put this principle into action. Therefore, he misrepresented God. Okay, so he said, he understood there's selfishness going. But if somebody's just saying, hi, I'm just going to be selfish, no one comes to your aid with that. So in order to implement this, he took that and put it onto Christ. So basically, God's saying, I am selfless. Satan's saying, no, 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 no. I am selfless. Christ's saying, no, 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 no. This is, 
This is true freedom. Satan says, no, no, no. This is true freedom. And he started to misrepresent and started to confuse people about what the great principle of heaven really is and who really represented the true character of God. John chapter 8. We're going to do a little brief history of the fall of Satan, otherwise known as the Great Controversy. We're going to need our Bibles, or if you don't have them, uh, the summaries are written right there in your notes. But in John chapter 8, verses, verse 44, I'd love to do a, a whole study on John 8 and the implications there, but you go in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and here Jesus is having one of many, many, many interactions with scribes and priests and Pharisees and rulers, leaders in the law. And here he says an interesting statement. We'll start with uh, verse, let's see, 38, I believe. No, let's, start, let's start with 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've seen with your father. Notice Christ is setting up a dichotomy. I have my father, and you have your father. They catch this, and they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, I love Jesus' pure, simple logic. Watch this now. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. I can tell you're not his because you don't do what he did. Very simple. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told the truth of which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Abraham never once tried to kill me. You're trying to kill me. You're not from my father. You have a different father. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You, and here's our key, verse 44, you are of your father, and now he identifies who that other father is. Who is that other father? The devil. You are of their father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So the same desires that were in him I recognize in you. He was a, what's the word? Murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Which drives me to this question. I've always, I don't want to say always, but for a long time I wrestled with what in the world did Satan actually do wrong in heaven that got him kicked out? What was his capital offense against God? What did he actually do? And and I don't like the answer, well, he questioned God's authority. Seriously asking questions gets you kicked out of heaven? No, 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 no. Jesus said he was a what? A murderer from the beginning. Very quick question. What, what, What is murder? Taking someone's life, killing someone, right? So which begs the question, who did he kill? Let's think about this. Who did he actually execute in heaven? Well, it's good that Jesus used the word murder, and Jesus defines the word murder for us in the exact same book. Just, I mean, go back into the book of Matthew, I'm sorry. In Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus defines what he means when he employs the term murder. What is he thinking of when he thinks of murder? Humanity thinks physically taking someone's life and ending it. Killing. 
Notice what Jesus has a deeper understanding of the law than that, which he came to articulate. Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 20 and 20, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Jesus basically is teaching that a murderous intent is tantamount to murder itself. And notice that Jesus in his dialogue with the Pharisees says, the desires of your father you want to do. Now, they hadn't killed Jesus yet. But he saw it in them, right? He said, I know where this is leading. The same principle that stirs you stirred your father. And Jesus says that murder actually goes deeper, goes down to the very motives, goes to what's going on inside of you where you can't see. Now, I would be very upset if I was charged for a crime that I only thought about. In our reckoning, this is unfair, this is unjust, it cannot be done. You actually have to do a thing wrong to be wrong, right? But in God's government, every secret intent, every motive, every thought will be brought into judgment. Of course, we can't see thoughts, but God can. And he looked right into the heart of Lucifer and he said, that's a murderer. And that's a capital offense. So why didn't God just kill him when he saw that he was a murderer? Isaiah chapter 14. Let's dig this in a little bit deeper. Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12. Commenting on the fall of Lucifer, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said, what are the next three words? In your heart. Where was he saying these grand things that we always read about? He was saying them in his heart. For you have said, in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. But all of that grand pompous wording was going on where? In his heart. Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And we often stop there, but I want to extend this now to the next verse. Because I think this is the key to our question. If God could see into his heart and see that he was a rebel, see that he was a murderer, and that his way would end in literal death, why not? There are people asking this question. If God could see into his heart and knew that he would kill people, why didn't he end him right then and there? The scripture gives us an answer. Right here it is, verse 16. Those who see you will gaze at you. What are some synonyms for gaze? To stare. To what else? To watch, to look, to study. Those who see you, your associates will watch you. They will gaze at you. Why? And, what are the next words? And consider you. They're going to watch what you do, and they're going to think about what you're doing. Saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? You know, there's a whole lot of angelic beings, heavenly intelligences, who knew Lucifer before he was a bad guy. And they're going to watch his entire principle, his operating principle of selfishness, run its course, and then they will see 
for themselves what this principle results in. And there's our answer for why God did not eliminate him the instant he saw into his heart and and knew he was a murderer. Because though he sees, others could not see. And he says, those who know you are going to look at you and watch you and think about you and ask very important questions. Is it possible that this is the same individual? Let's go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. And I want you to see that both of the chapters that we typically go to in our Seventh Adventist presentation of the origin of sin, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, give identical rationale for why Satan was merely cast out of heaven instead of wiped out of existence. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And of course, the seven Adventists, our mind goes back to the Ark of the Covenant and those two angels who fold their wings right there at the Shekinah glory. He was one of those. I established you. Some versions say, for so I ordained you. He was an ordained minister. Goes on. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found. Where was it found? In you. Notice the same thing from Isaiah 14, that it was all within him. It was inside of him. For he said, in his heart, it was found in you. Goes on. Till iniquity was found in you. And here's the answer to the question I've been wrestling for a long time. What did he actually do wrong in heaven? Verse 16. By the abundance of your trading. Some versions say merchandise. What? You know, I thought Jesus said he was a murderer. Here Ezekiel says he was a businessman. Merchandise, commerce, trade, traffic. Huh. Let's keep going. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence. And where was the violence? Within. And you sinned. Therefore, for that reason, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you of covering cherub from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might, what? Gaze at you, behold you, so that they can watch you. Same exact rationale from Isaiah. Goes on. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. Iniquity is another word for sin, right? The great things you were doing, these transgressions. By the iniquity of your, and here's our word again, trading. The sin, the iniquity that got him cast out of heaven was trading something, merchandise, selling something. What in the world? What was that? In the King James, it's traffic, T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K, traffic. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. I devoured, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon, this, upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And notice verse 19. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. Apparently, the discipline doled out to Lucifer for his great iniquity was not merely punitive, but it was also redemptive for the others around them. 
He said, I'm doing this so that they can see, they can gaze at you, they can consider you, they can be astonished at you, they can learn what was inside of you, but I need to give it time to come on the outside of you. God can see in the heart, we can't. So he gives him time. Now, fascinating enough, if you look this word up, T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K, in your little LNG White app or whatever thing that you have, you'll find one reference to that word. And it's from Seventh Avenue's Bible Commentary, I believe it's volume 4, page 1163. She comments directly on this statement. What was the sin, what was the traffic that got him kicked out of heaven? She says, in this place, traffic is the emblem of corrupt administration. It denotes the bringing of self-seeking into spiritual offices. From his office as a covering cherub, where he was supposed to receive to give glory, he started siphoning it off to himself. And that's the traffic that he was doing. He was peddling an idea, counter to God's circuit of beneficence. It denotes the bringing of self-seeking into spiritual offices. Nothing in spiritual service is acceptable to God except the purposes and works that are for the good of the universe. To do good to others. Sounds like Paul. Sounds like Jesus. Sounds like Ella White way back in the beginning of all the floofy words about shrubs and birds and grass. To do good for others will redound to the glory of God. And notice how many times she uses the principle word next. The principles of Satan's working in heaven are the same principles by which he works through human agents in this world. It is through these corrupting principles that every earthly empire and the churches have been increasingly corrupted. It is by the working out of these principles that Satan deceives and corrupts the whole world from the beginning to the ending. His operating premise is selfishness, and that principle has corrupted the whole world. This is what she's, being, she's teaching here. He is continuing the same policy working originally begun in the heavenly universe. He is energizing the whole world with his violence with which he corrupted the world in the days of Noah. Again, notice the identical rationale for the expulsion rather than destruction that they might gaze at you. What the heavenly intelligences could not at first see in the heart of Lucifer was finally manifested at Calvary. And just a little aside on this, of course people had died, thousands, perhaps millions upon millions of people had died before Jesus died on the cross. But could not Satan have made a logical claim and said, well sure they died, they all sinned. Right? And it's God's law that says the wages of sin is what? Death. It's like, yeah, I had a hand in all those deaths, but it wasn't murder. I'm executing God's law. I'm actually, I'm just showing you what your God's all about. But when Jesus came and lived a sinless life, rebuffed every advance of Satan, put down every temptation, lived an untainted existence, and Lucifer killed him too... Something lit up in the minds of those who knew him earlier on. Watch this now. This is from Desire of Ages 761, about the moment Jesus died on the cross. It says this, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration 
was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. Think about this. Even for 4,000 years of Earth's history of watching his principles, they didn't fully comprehend what was in his heart until they saw the cross of Calvary. And they said, wow, now we can see that he really was a murderer from the very beginning. Watch this now. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. Now the violence that was within, way up in heaven, was unleashed on the sinless Son of God, and they actually saw the murder take place. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings, which wrap your mind around that, what it's saying. For at least 4,000 years of human misery, unfallen angels, sinless beings, still had some element of sympathy for Satan. It's as though they're turning to God saying, look, we're on your side, but let's at least hear him out. Which is exactly what Isaiah and Ezekiel are saying. That's why he cast him out, so that they might gaze at you and consider you. They need to think about you and understand where your principles lead. Notice this. Sympathy for heaven. Henceforth his work was restricted. And notice it's not an arbitrary decree of God. You can't come near my angels and talk to them anymore. You look at the book of Job. Apparently had free access once he gained control of the earth to come and talk to the angels. And they weren't straighting sides, but they were hearing him out. But notice, henceforth his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels that they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brother of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Apparently he was allowed into those meetings so that his, his principles could be more fully revealed And every being who would live beyond the end of sin would have a clear picture of where sin would lead. So they would never choose to participate in it again. Angels needed to see, and this is the point I want to try to make here from this whole uh, review of the fall of Satan. Angels needed to see the principles demonstrated in the life. Do you see what I'm saying? They needed to see the principles of Satan's government lived out in the life. And then they could say, aha, this is what I don't want, that's what I do want. And it's so fascinating to me that they had never before had an opportunity to see how much God would really be willing to give of himself until Satan revealed himself as a murderer. So when Satan's character was fully revealed at the cross in the exact same moment, so was the character of God fully revealed to the intelligences for the very first time. Before that, it had all been theory. But Christ came to give himself. And they saw the contrast between the great giver, the one who would give even the life of his own dear son, in contrast with the one who would take everything, including the life of God's dear son. So the first time they saw the clear contrast between the character and the principles of God's government and the character and principles of Satan and his government. It's a fascinating thing. But we go on. So now the question is, why not destroy Satan even now? Finally, the, untel- the intelligent, uh, unfallen beings see for themselves 
It's like they can turn to God and my sanctified imagination says, Lord, we didn't understand who Lucifer really was. Thank you so much for giving us time to see for ourselves where his administration is. But we now know that you are right. He's a murderer. He deserves to die. Though we loved him, we understand the justice in this strange work of yours. Go ahead. Execute justice. And you can almost imagine God turning and saying, Great. Thank you for finally being on board after thousands of years. I really appreciate that. Now, I want to bring some of his loyal subjects right back here. And Gabriel's like, huh? You want to bring sinners back here? He's like, that's right. That's what I want to do. Because you know, it's not called the plan of destruction. It's called the plan of salvation. Unless something is saved, the plan isn't complete. It's more than just destroying sin. It actually involves saving sinners. Now think about this. And this is where I get this next idea. While the angels can now clearly see why Satan should be destroyed, they still need to see evidence that we should live. Think about it. They're like, all right, we've seen what he's all about, and he's not ever coming back. No more sympathy for him. God's like, good, now I want to take some of his followers and bring them back. And I slow down. We need to see some evidence of which principle they operate their lives under. Okay? Which is what Mrs. White clearly says. Look at the very next, after the last link of sympathy was broken, very next words. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. Apparently there's more involved in the great controversy than ending Satan. Goes on. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. As Seventh day Adventists, we just kind of, oh, that's a beautiful sentence. Notice how crazy you sound when you say that. Why did that terrible train incident happen? Why did that murder happen? Why did that disease... Why, are we, why doesn't God just fix it all? Why doesn't he end Satan now? And you say, oh, good news, brother. It's, it's good for Satan to be alive. It's in our best interest. Huh? You people are crazy. If you have the audacity to say that, you better have a good theological backup for why you believe that. Right? Mrs. White makes this point. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. If for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness, and he must choose whom he will serve. Are we going to serve the selfless creator or the selfish corrupter? Which will be the principle of our lives? And apparently, the angels are watching, not for evidence that Satan should die, but evidence that we should live. Goes on. Perhaps, oh, and this is, I like this little thing. Gabriel's concern is more, is, uh, is more than merely you're getting into heaven. He's concerned that you actually fit into heaven once you get there. Right? Our concern, and I'll tell you, I think sometimes we have a very selfish religion. Is all about, Lord, what's it take for me to get into heaven? I want those streets of gold. I want a mansion. I want to have, you know, I want to eat from the tree of life. I want to relax. I want to be done with work. I want to have, blah, blah, blah. when do I get there? How do I get in? And Gabriel's saying, stop! <laughs> we got to make sure they fit in before you let them get in. 
Do you see the difference? That salvation in Jesus entails more than merely getting into heaven, it's a fitting into heaven. Perhaps we focus on Christ's promise to prepare a place for us while we neglect his parallel promise to prepare us for that place. If he were to take us right now out of this world and place us into the courts of heaven, into the society of angels, would we fit in? Or would we just ruin the place for everybody else? He must choose whom he will serve. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is talking about his job description. In Ephesians chapter 3, he kind of explains what you would expect him to explain about how he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 8. He said, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But that is not the end of his sentence. Comma, verse 9, And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. He's like, so beyond just preaching this message, he's like, and I want to make all see... What is the fellowship of this mystery? There's some deep wisdom of God, some mystery that needs revealing. Goes on, verse 10. I'm sorry, still verse 9. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. Verse 10 is our punchline. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Paul uses very long sentences. Peter says he writes things that are sometimes hard to understand. So we're going to break this down. He says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, and manifold simply means a complex device, right? A complicated, deep thing. This wisdom of God might be made known. First of all, who's he making it known to? Not by, but to, according to the text. Look at the text again. Made known to whom? The principalities and powers where? And God has some wisdom that he's trying to make the other heavenly beings know. Is that clear from the text? So my question, and they're both in the same place. They're both in heaven. Why doesn't God just turn to them and explain it? But notice what the text says. What is his uh, learning device? What's his medium for explanation? By the church. God says, there's something about me. There's something about my plan. There's something about my wisdom that you need to know that you cannot learn from simply me telling you. You need to see it for yourselves. He says, now, turn your attention to exhibit A. I'd like you to notice my people. When you watch them, you're going to learn something you didn't know about me. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to, by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Apparently, God has designed that his people should teach not just the people on this world, but also the people of other worlds about God. There's an Old Testament parallel to this. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy, chapter 4 starting with verse 5. 
Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, says, uh, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. So here, Moses is commanding obedience to the Lord's commands, and he's saying, look, I taught you the statutes and judgments of God that you should obey them when you go into the land you're going to possess. So notice he's saying, I taught you the law of God, and when you obey it, I want you to obey it among these other people who don't know the law of God. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 2. I'm sorry. You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. And he goes on to explain. Verse, now we'll skip down to verse 6. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom where? In the sight of all the peoples who will hear of all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. He said, people in these surrounding nations are going to be watching you, and you claim to serve this God of love. You serve this God has all these rules, these laws. Let's see what it looks like lived out in your life. He's saying, they're going to be watching you. You should be a witness. Now, here are, for, for those of you who like obscure references, for, for our super nerdy people in the room, which I'm sure there's a few here, right? Here we go. You'll find this one in the Crest Collection, page 14. So I want you to know it's really there. Okay? She quotes Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Then she says these words. Even these words, and she's talking about the words of Moses recorded in Scripture. Even these words fail of reaching the greatness and the glory of God's purpose to be accomplished through his people. Not to this world only, but to the universe are we to make manifest the principles of his kingdom. He's like, not just are other people watching you, the whole universe is watching you now. Will you be good citizens of heaven? And then she quotes three verses from Scripture after that. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, which we just read, about the manifold wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, where Paul talks about we are made a spectacle unto the world, unto angels and to men. He defines the world as both men and angels. And finally, the third one, 2 Peter chapter 3, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking forward, hastening the coming of the day of God. She says you should do all these things because the whole universe is watching now. And here's another one, Manuscript 73A, 1900. God desires his people to show by their lives the advantage of Christianity over worldliness. Think about how simple that is. God could just turn to the angels like, oh, trust me, they're going to be fine. Or trust me, why way is right. Just trust me. He says, yes, but I want your faith not to be blind faith. I want it to be built upon clearly seen evidence. Right? Faith in God is not a blind leap into the dark. It's built on a demonstrative evidence. And even the unfallen beings are looking for evidence that God's redemption plan is wise. Again, God desires his people to show by their lives the advantage of Christianity over worldliness. Through us, God desires to reveal his manifold wisdom. Lifted the phrase right there from Ephesians 3. Therefore, so what does that look like? And to too many Seventh Adventists, we think, oh, 
I tell you that I'm going to reveal the, the character of God. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to eat unclean meats. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to take all those bad things and cut them off and, and, and all those besetting sins and run the race faithfully. I'm just going to wince up and not do a thing. And the universe will see that I'm a good Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Notice the finish of the statement. Therefore, he bids us let our light shine forth in what? Good works. Being a good citizen of heaven entails more than merely the avoidance of evil. It entails, in fact, it entirely is summarized by doing good for others. Of course, we all know 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, where the definition of sin, sin is the transgression of the law. We know that. So if I break the law, if I do bad things, then I'm sinning. Of course, so I won't do, I won't do, I won't do, I won't do that. But then you back up into James chapter 4 and verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is him. It is sin. To him it is sin. Is that right? So while you're trying to restrict and don't, 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 then you back into, oh, shoot, I'm sinning on this side because I'm not doing, 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 doing anything. We become the people who don't. Ask your friends, what are Seventh-day Adventists all about? If they know anything, it's that you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't eat unclean. What do the people here at this place in this seminar know about us so far? That we don't eat meat. Right? Because they handed out all those little maps and the things and highlighted the ones that are vegetarian friendly because that's the thing we don't do. But I hope by the time we leave they can see what we actually do. For the glory of God, right? Not just what we don't do. We don't want to leave our mark on the world as the people who don't. We want to be the people who do righteousness, not just avoid evil. Our understanding of righteousness should not be limited merely to the avoidance of evil when we adopt that as long as I'm not being bad, all is good mentality. We have an incomplete gospel presentation. What did it look like in the life of Christ? You'll find this in Desire of Ages. Uh, I don't have the page reference there, but it's a... Punch it in, you'll find it. Christ was not exclusive, and he had given special offense to the Pharisees by departing in this respect from their rigid rules. He found the domain of religion fenced in by high walls of seclusion as too sacred a matter for everyday life. These walls of partition he overthrew. In his contact with men, he did not ask, What is your creed? To what church do you belong? He exercised his helping power in behalf of all who needed help. Instead of secluding himself in a hermit's cell in order to show his heavenly character, he labored earnestly for humanity. You know, he could have done that. You know, this idea of Jesus could have come down and been the glory of God on, 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 on display like a touring museum piece, you know, like in a jar and, and, and a shaft of light on a pedestal. You know. And people would come from miles around to take a glimpse at the glory of God in a box. But he didn't do that. He said, I want you to see the Father, but I want you to see it in my character. And I want you to see my character in what I do and not merely what I avoid doing. He manifested it in good works. Goes on, the statement continues. 
He inculcated the, what's the next word? Principle. That's right, everyone with me at one time. (laughs) He inculcated the principle. These are our two big principles of the universe. He inculcated the principle that Bible religion does not consist in the mortification of the body. Your righteousness is not simply what you restrict yourself from doing. I want to swear, but since I'm not, I'm being righteous. I want to overeat, but since I'm not, I'm being righteous. I want to drink, I want to smoke, I want to do, but since I'm not. He said that is not the definition of pure religion. He goes on, she goes on to say, he taught that pure and undefiled religion, we're going to come back to that phrase, pure and undefiled religion, is not meant only for set times and special occasions. At all times and in all places, he manifested a loving interest in men and shed about him the light of a cheerful piety. All this was a rebuke to the Pharisees. It, and here's I love this, showed his life of unselfishness and giving, showed that religion does not consist in selfishness. His life of disinterested beneficence demonstrated the principle of heaven. It showed that religion does not consist in selfishness and that their morbid devotion to personal interest was far from being true godliness. Mm. James chapter 1, verse 7. Where did she get that phrase, pure and un... Because, by the way, Mrs. Wright is a fantastic writer. She uses these just wonderful, crisp phrases and just, just articulate right to the point puts these images in your mind. But where did she come up with this particular phrase, pure and undefiled religion? James James chapter 1, verse 7, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Here's the definition of perfect religion. And it's got two components. To visit the fatherless and widow in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The Jews were doing one part very, very well have no contact with the world, completely keep you, you could never think that they were a friend of sinners. Because they were not friends to anyone. Right? They kept themselves unspotted from the world. But they had completely abandoned the whole fatherless and the widow and the orphan. This was not just a New Testament phenomenon. Please go to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. We're getting to some... We're building a a theological basis for practical Christian effort in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I believe that the message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church must be preached in the method of Christ. Message and method must go together. It can't just be a proclamation. It must be a demonstration. Isaiah chapter 58. I don't know that we have time to read through the whole thing. Well, we... No, we don't have time. We just don't have time. But... Basically, what you have here is this people seeking the Lord, crying aloud. Verse 2, they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways. As a nation, they did righteousness. They did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. So these are people who love to worship God. They love the law of the Lord. They think they're doing great. What's the problem? Verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, And you have not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? Lord, we're fasting, we're afflicting our souls, we're doing, in fact, we're doing nothing bad at all. And yet, we've yet to see that Pentecostal spiritual outpouring that was promised. 
Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Indeed, in fact, he goes on. Look at God's response in verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast an acceptable day of the Lord? He said, all you're doing is praying and seeking and retreating and talking and on and on and on and on and on and afflicting your souls, but you aren't doing anything. Look at verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? And he says, this is what genuine religion looks like. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. And you not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. So their issue is we cry unto the Lord and you never reveal yourself. You never pour out your power. You never pour out your spirit. And we're sitting here, we're afflicting our souls and we're crying out and we're praying and fasting. And he's like, but you're not doing anything. Have you done, have you, have you, have you reached out to anyone else at all? Is, or is your spiritual life based on a premise of selfishness? This was the problem What Jesus faced, and long before that, that was Israel's problem. Apparently they were so absorbed in their personal spiritual experience that they neglected to do good for others, the good that Israel originally was established to do. Remember? And I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. He didn't just say, I'm going to bless you. Enjoy. He said, take that blessing and be a blessing to others. Receive to give. Goes on. It seems that they were so intent on being good before God that they neglected to do good for others. Mrs. White has incredibly, a, a, a huge storehouse of counsel about Isaiah chapter 58. Here are just a few samples. This is found in Welfare Ministry, page 32. The work specified in these words, speaking of Isaiah 58, is the work that God requires his people to do. It is a work of his own appointment. With the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that is made in the law of God, so promoting Sabbath-keeping, having these great revivals and having these big proclamation events, with that, we are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. We are to show supreme love to God. We are to exalt His memorial, which has been trodden down by unholy feet. And with this, we are to manifest mercy, benevolence, and the tenderest pity for the fallen race. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Notice these words, as a people. That's all of us, not just a portion of it, or we need a ministry who does this. All of us, as a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. Apparently, the Seventh Adventist Church was raised up to do more than simply preach truth. To proclaim truth, it was supposed to demonstrate the principle of heaven, to demonstrate the character of God in our lives. Again, Welfare Ministry, the next page, 33. I cannot too strongly urge all our church members, all who are true missionaries, 
I love that at one point in the Seventh-day Adventist mindset, church members and missionaries were equivalent. Right now we have a whole bunch of church members who occasionally send out a missionary. But here, to all, all church members, all who are true missionaries, all who believe the third angel's message, all who turn away their feet from the Sabbath to consider the message of 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work of beneficence enjoined in this chapter is the work that God requires his people to do at this time. I don't know how how language can get any plainer. It is a work of his own appointment. Now, My Life Today, page 241. In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work that the people of God are to do in Christ's lines is clearly set forth. They are to break every yoke. They are to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Now, watch this now. If they carry out the, what's our word? principles of the law of God in acts of mercy and love, they will represent the character of God to the world and receive the richest blessings of heaven. Apparently, we're called not only to proclaim the nature of God, the character of God, but to actually demonstrate it in our lives. What would this look like? And at this point, I just want to make a quick aside There are tremendous other seminars here. I I highly recommend you take a listen to Dave Fiedler's seminar from this morning. It was a tremendous blessing. There is some practical advice we need to learn from there. I'll just say that and move on. But I I say that now because this reference to San Francisco, I I learned from him. So there you go. What would this look like if the Seventh-day Adventist Church, in equal measure, adopted not just proclamation of the message of God, but actually a revelation of the character of God in good works. What if we did both of those things? Because honestly, I can tell you what's sometimes been in my heart, and I must be, I have to be ashamed of it, and and I'm sure it's been in other hearts too. We look at people who do benevolent work, beneficent work, good for the poor, those homeless shelters, soup kitchens, you know, like, oh, they're doing good with all the light that they have. But we have a message to preach. Our work is revelation seminars. Their work... See what I'm saying? Mm. What would it look like if Seventh-day Adventist people took this on seriously? San Francisco, 1901. Mrs. White arrives and she says, From Elder J.O. Corliss, who is the pastor of the San Francisco Church, we learn that there are many lines of Christian effort being carried forward by our brethren and sisters in San Francisco. And try to count all the activities the San Francisco Seventh Adventist Church was employed in in 1901. Here it is. These include visiting the sick and the destitute, finding homes for orphans, and work for the unemployed. We look at that and, oh, that's government work, or they should work harder, they should do that, but that's not church work, right? That's for others. Nursing the sick and teaching the love of God, Christ, from house to house. The distribution of literature and the conducting of classes for healthful living and care of the sick. A school for the children is conducted in the basement of the meeting house. In another part of the city, a working man's home. What's a working man's home in modern uh, vocabulary? What is a working man's home today? It's a homeless shelter. A Seventh-day Adventist homeless shelter existed. In another part of the city, a working man's home and medical mission is maintained. On Market Street near the city hall, there's a bath establishment, which we would think of as a hydrotherapy center, operated as a branch of the St. Helena Sanitarium. 
In the same locality is a depot of the health food company where health foods are not only sold, but instruction is given as to how as to reforms in diet. Near the center of the city, our people conduct a vegetarian cafe, which is open six days in the week and is entirely closed on the Sabbath. Here, about 500 meals are served daily and no flesh meats are used. Dr. and Mrs. Dr. Lamb are doing much medical work for the poor in connection with their regular practice, and Dr. Buchanan is doing much free work at the working man's home. At the medical and dental schools in the city, there are about 20 of our young people in attendance. We earnestly hope, and this is what blew me away, besides the fact that there's like 14 different simultaneous ministries all doing stuff in San Francisco from one church family, this is her comment on that. She does not say we should rein that in and take the same energy and resources and go do more evangelistic crusades. What did she say? We earnestly hope that the steps taken in the future in the work in San Francisco will be steps of progress. The work that has been done there is but a beginning. She looked at all that was going on and she said, that's a really good start. What would she say about my churches that I pastor now? Would she say, like, you're really doing... It's a good start you got there, if she called this a good start. San Francisco is a world in itself, and the Lord's work there is to broaden and deepen. The Seventh-day Adventist message and mandate, the mission of our church, is both broad and deep. It's not just one or the other. So let's bring a conclusion here. The completeness of Christian character. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a litmus test to know when you've arrived? You know? I know we like lists. I'd like to have a checklist that say, you know, do the windows, go to the bank, complete Christian character, that kind of thing. How would you know when you did it? What would it really look like? Would it be every Seventh-day Adventist guarded the edges of the Sabbath with meticulous care? Or every Seventh-day Adventist finally went vegan. Is that it? Watch this. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. You know you're like Jesus when you're like Jesus. Is that a simple enough premise? When it just, you don't even think, like, oh, I wonder what church they're in. It just comes out of your pores. You're like, ah, that's it. That's the completeness of Christian character. It goes on. It is the atmosphere of this love surrounding the soul of the believer that makes him a savor of life unto life and enables God to bless his work. Supreme love for God and unselfish love for one another. This is the best gift that our Heavenly Father can bestow. This love is not an impulse. But a divine, here's our word again, principle, a permanent power. The unconsecrated heart cannot originate or produce it. Only in the heart where Jesus reigns is it found. We love him because he first loved us. In the renewed heart by divine grace, love is the ruling principle of action. That's Acts of the Apostles 5.51. I have one here that's not in your notes. You're just going to have to listen to it carefully and look it up on your own. It's found in Education, page 264. Those who reject the privilege of fellowship with Christ in service reject the only training that imparts a fitness 
for participation with him in his glory. You can do everything else, but unless you're willing to roll up your sleeves and serve and just give of yourself, it's all about getting in, but you still haven't formed a character that would fit in to the society of heaven. It's a powerful thought. And the last one here in Heavenly Places 2.33. God positively enjoins upon all his followers a duty to bless others with their influence and means. In doing for others a sweet satisfaction will be experienced, an inward peace which will be sufficient reward. When actuated by a high and noble desire to do others good, they will find true happiness in a faithful discharge of life's manifold duties. This will bring more than an earthly reward, for every faithful, unselfish performance of duty is noticed by whom? By the angels. And shines in the life record. You see the implication? They're not watching why Satan should die. They're looking for evidence that you should come there and live. In heaven, none will think of self, nor seek of their own pleasure. How many times have I talked to young people who are terrified of heaven because I'll have to live forever, and what if I get bored? You know I'm right about this. You shake your head like it's travesty, but you know what I'm talking about. We talk about 10,000 years later, like, okay, after I've ridden so many dolphins and slid down, what am I going to do next? Right? There's a different operating principle going on in their minds, in our minds, in my mind. In heaven, none will think of self nor seek their own pleasure, but all from pure, genuine love will seek the happiness of the heavenly beings around them. Very simple premise right here at the very end. If we wish to enjoy heavenly society and the earth made new, we must be governed by heavenly principles here. If we're ever going to fit in there, we got to learn to do it here. Because let me tell you something. When Jesus comes again, you know what new thing we get? We get a new body. Praise the Lord, by the way, you know. I'm just old enough to start wanting a new back. You know, and, and I could use a couple of new knees. I, I, w- I wouldn't mind a better body. I, I won't lie to you. Uh, uh, an eternal one and a vibrant, always going body. But that's what we get when he returns. You know what we don't get? Is a new character. The only thing we take from this world to the next is our character. And it's good to treat our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's good to be health reformers. That's fantastic. We should do that. We should demonstrate that the the principles could actually change us physically. But the big physical change is coming at the second coming. The real question in mind is, is my character like that of Jesus Christ? And not only is it for my selfish interest, how about even forgetting to think about that question and just doing for others and actually develop the character? Hmm. I like to close this message always with Matthew chapter 25. I can think of no more powerful, no more poignant, no more convincing, no more convicting articulation of what we've been talking about, this circuit of beneficence, the receiving to give, doing for others instead of yourself. And what Jesus himself says about his own return in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Which, parenthetically, by the way, 
just living to the second coming is not good enough, at least for me. I praise the Lord that I believe Jesus is coming soon and I want to live to the second coming. But more than that, I want to live through the second coming. Plenty of people will be alive when it happens, but not after it happens. Watch this now. Verse 33. And he will set his sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's why. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Please, please, please notice that the fire was not prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. There's absolutely no reason any of us need to join him there. But why do this, does this group have that comment from Christ, that execution of judgment? Verse 30, uh, 42. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. What's astounding to me about this chapter, I mean, outside of this incident recorded, this passage, is the fact that literally, word for word, the response of the wicked is identical to the response of the righteous. Look at every single word, exactly the same. Lord, when did we see you? Right? The righteous say at first, they're like, no, Lord, when did we see you? The wicked fall up and they say the same thing. Lord, when did we see you? As if to say, Lord, when did we see you? It's almost as if, if we'd have known it was you, we would have put on a potluck, right? We would have done canned food drives. We would have done prison ministry. We would have done community services. We would have had a homeless shelter, a soup kitchen. You name it, we would have done it if we knew it was you because we're trying to get in. But it wasn't you. It was just people. That's when Christ is like, that's my point. Of course you'd have done it for me. But you don't understand the nature of the kingdom where we're going. You don't fit in. And... Again, the response of the righteous, identical. It says, 
And, and they're not arguing. They're like, Lord, are you sure you want to take us? You know, they're not saying that. They're like, sure, we're coming in, Lord. But Lord, when did we see you? You know, we never saw you out there. And he's like, that's my point. You didn't even know it was me and you did it anyway. You fit in. Come on in. And Gabriel's like, take the mansion right next to me. You belong here. The greatest I feel, promise of God is found in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. That affliction will not rise a second time. And how can a God who gives us freedom of choice make that kind of a guarantee about our decisions? The only way that can happen is if the very benevolent character of Christ is reproduced in every citizen of heaven. So that selfishness, where sin originated, will never again rear its ugly head. When every person, every being, every creature in heaven completes that circuit of beneficence. They receive to give. Self is laid in the dust. And with one accord, the universe redounds to the glory of God. Do you see a bigger picture of Seventh-day Adventism than simply holding evangelistic crusades? Now, I'm not knocking that, of course. But couldn't we have a broader and deeper work than many of us are currently doing? Mm. This study has been a rebuke to me. And hopefully, by the Holy Spirit's grace, it's a rebuke to all of us. Heaven is not about getting, and it's about fitting, about being like Christ, not just doing for Christ to get something from Christ. Just two, two seconds more, and then we'll be done. The redeemed is going to sing a song. What's the title of the song? It's the song of Moses and the Lamb. Moses and the Lamb had things in common, but one of the things that strike me, both of them were willing to, to lose their own life for the sake of others. Revelation 12, verse 11, when it talks about the overcomers, they did not love their lives unto the death. I don't have that character yet. But praise the Lord, I think that I serve a God who can do something greater than I can do. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you have raised up this movement at this time and that we can be part of that people. But Lord, help us to do more than simply proclaim your truths and your character and your good name. Lord, help us to live it out in our lives. Help us to be a living, walking, talking, breathing demonstration of the selfless, beneficent character of God. Lord, let Seventh-day Adventism be known as that movement who just doesn't do, but they, doesn't avoid evil, but they do good. When people see us, they no longer see us. They see Christ in us. Lord, to this end, bless us now as we leave. Change us and fit us for your glory. Pray it in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.